out your sermon outline. Just kind of sunk. We are in the book of Revelation. We have made it all the way to chapter 2. So we are flying now. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Listen carefully as this is God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word, making us your people. As we start to look at the seven churches in the book of Revelation, will you please help us? We know there's still a lot that we need to learn from what you say to these churches so it can have full impact in our church. We know we're a lot more like these churches than we want to admit. We struggle with the same sins, the same temptations, the same idols, the same issues, the same problems, the same lack of faith. And God, we know that soft words produce hard people and hard words produce soft people. We want to be people who are soft and kind and loving with each other. So bring the hard words. Lord, teach us now and teach us well and help us to remember those things we did at first and repent because we don't love you and we don't love each other as we should. And through it all, help us to meet you in this book. Reveal to us the Lord Jesus and his glory as we see him in these words. Do this for each of us this morning in Jesus' good name and for his great glory. Amen. Amen. As some of you know, I wrote my dissertation on the preaching practices of evangelical pastors in the newer churches of Loudoun County, Virginia. It's a long title. And along the way, I learned a few things about the churches in our area. So I want to tell you a little bit about what I've learned about the churches in our area. Loudoun County churches face a variety of challenges. The environment here is anything but friendly to a vibrant Christian faith. Many of our churches are located in self-sufficient, comfortable communities and are thus are tempted to pursue what Francis Schaeffer called a lifestyle of personal peace and affluence. And these churches have learned to rely not on Christ but on their financial resources 
for security. We have other churches who have suffered the stain of sexual scandal. We have still other churches who've been stigmatized in our community for being aloof and intolerant of other viewpoints. You know, after all, people and politicians of Loudoun County have found it expedient to cultivate the favor of the power brokers in the capital area, and uh, we have learned to show our loyalty to a system uh, through a civil religion that is unencumbered by personal conviction. So the next time you hear a politician say, I believe this, but I won't let it affect how I think or vote, um, please bring a bucket because I'm going to be sick. <laughs> the, uh, if it doesn't affect how you think or vote or live or make decisions, you don't really believe it, my opinion. There are other churches who are experts in doctrinal precision, but amid the theological wars have lost the capacity to care for hurting people. And there's other churches who are unclear about where to draw the line that defines the essentials of the gospel as they adapt their message to the culture, as they try to fit in with the world and the uh, culture and society and fit in with non-Christians. We have churches that are all image and no reality. They lack spiritual vitality despite an impressive array of activities. And there's a few that are struggling to hold on in the midst of a community that either ignores or despises them. And so these Loudoun County churches sound stereotypically 21st century Northern Virginian. But in fact, this is a sketch of the situation, the strengths and weaknesses of the seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century to which Jesus addresses this revelation through the Apostle John. Seven churches, different in so many ways from one another, and yet seven churches who are so similar in so many ways to the churches in which we live and serve Jesus today. What one thing do these churches need uh, to fortify themselves against the enemy's assaults, to make them savvy to his strategies, to make them loyal to God and compassionate to their oppressors. The one thing they need is they need to hear Jesus' voice. His voice comforts our weak and wounded hearts. His voice diagnoses our diseases. It shatters our dreams of an easy life in the here and now, and it calls us forward to final victory that's only found in his coming. Looking forward to that day where we'll dwell in the new Jerusalem with him forever. His voice addresses us today in these letters to the seven churches. For each letter is what the Spirit says to the churches. So before we dive in too far into our text this morning, let's take a quick refresher on what's going on here in the book of Revelation. Because we won't understand um, these letters if we forget the context if we forget about the symbols and the sevens. Jesus Christ is the Lord of his church. He walks among the seven lampstands and holds the seven stars in his hand. And that same Jesus now comes to us with words of commendation and words of rebuke that's found in these seven letters to these churches in Asia Minor. And so before we go on, it's important to understand the context so we can interpret them correctly. There's a lot of people think that these uh, letters represent seven periods in church history. I think it's much better 
to see these as seven historic Christian congregations facing horrible persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire, in addition to struggling with this vast array of heretical teaching that's attacking them from outside and also arising from within the church. And throughout the book of Revelation, the number seven represents completeness and perfection, and that means these letters and situations are representative of the whole of Christ's church throughout the ages. It's important to keep in mind the unique literary style of the book of Revelation. Each of these visions serves as a different camera angle as this redemptive drama unfolds. Each vision focuses on a particular aspect of the struggle between Christ and Satan during the last days, which is the entire period of time between uh, the first and second coming of Christ. And throughout these visions, John uses apocalyptic language, sort of end times language, in which symbols serve as word pictures of this cosmic struggle between Jesus Christ and his defiant, though already defeated foe, the devil. And John uses symbols we see here, such as lampstands and stars and keys, as well as numbers such as seven, to point us to the realities which these symbols represent. So in order to understand the meaning of the symbols, we have to look to the Old Testament from where these symbols are drawn. And we have to remember the historical situation, first century uh, Roman Empire, that's the backdrop against which all these struggles are being played out. For example, in these letters to the seven churches, John will refer to their historical circumstances faced by those Christians in those churches. But he'll also use that to point us beyond the first century to the same struggles that we face today in our own age. Because the Christ of the seven churches in the first century is the same Christ of all the churches in the 21st century. And he still walks among the lampstands. And the lampstands are symbolic of the work of God's Holy Spirit in the churches, reminds us of the church's function to be light bearers uh, to a fallen world. And where the lampstand is present, Jesus is present. And where Jesus is present, the Holy Spirit is active, bringing God's light to a world that lives in darkness. So with all that in mind, let's turn to our text this morning and Christ's letter to the church. His letter to the church should be the first blank there in your outline. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. First of all, determining who the angel of the church was is difficult to interpret. There are several options that would take way too much time to go into, so we're going to stick with the most obvious one, and I think the correct one, and that's that the angel of the church is actually an angel. Hard to believe, I know. Revelation refers to angels over 60 times, and it never refers to a person or a thing. It always refers to a spiritual being who serves God. In other words, an angel. Most likely, these angels are the heavenly guardians of the church, which, if you think about it, is a wonderful thing. In any case, it's obvious that each letter closes, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, 
It's obvious that it's a whole congregation being addressed here in this letter. If we could put up the map. We have the map today? We don't? Keep going. Ha! There's the map. So, and I have this cool little pointer thing. Here's Patmos, little tiny island, prison colony. And here's Ephesus, which used to be a major seaport. And these letters are written to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And they form sort of a uh, semicircle around like that. And that's the way the, uh, essentially the mail carrier, the messenger, would go to deliver these letters. And so the first church we see is in Ephesus. And we have this idea that Ephesus is sort of this small, rural, backward town. And uh, that's not the case at all. Ephesus, it was natural to begin with the church in Ephesus. It's the chief city of the whole area. Not just this little area, but all of Asia Minor, all of what we know of as Turkey today. It was the first seaport in Asia Minor. And it had a major river that came into it. It was actually about three miles from the sea. That's all filled in now. Today it's uh, all inland and it's six miles uh, from the sea. But it was the first seaport and it was the home to the Temple of Diana, known as Artemis. Diana was called Diana by the Romans. Uh, Artemis by the Greeks was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a gigantic temple, took up about two football fields to give you an idea of size. And uh, this was a great city, was a huge city. It was the cosmopolitan city of its day. It had about a quarter million people, and uh, for the first century, that was huge. So someone told me this morning it was the London of its day. Well, 40 years before this letter, we can go to Acts chapter 18. We see that Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos all ministered there. We know from Acts 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul spent three years there building that church. That ministry, if you remember, came to an end after certain Jews tried to exercise demons in the name of Jesus. And that didn't work out real well. The demon-possessed man turned on them and essentially beat him to a pulp. And as a result of that incident and the way it was handled, there were lots of people who started coming to Jesus. And there were lots of occultists who were coming to Jesus. And it wasn't long before one of their major industries, which was selling religious trinkets to support this giant temple, uh, started to dry up. So many people were coming to Jesus, people stopped buying all this occult junk. And as the account goes in Acts, the local merchants and the worshipers of Artemis uh, formed this riotous mob, and uh, they tried to get at Paul to harm him, possibly even kill him, so Paul left. If you read through Acts, that's a sort of a repetitive pattern with Paul. He goes, he converts people, he preaches the gospel, they try to kill him. He leaves, and he goes and does the whole thing somewhere else. But Paul later places Timothy there. He has an extensive ministry guarding the gospel in that place. Paul wrote them a letter during his imprisonment in Rome, the letter to the Ephesians, as well as his two letters to Timothy. Then late in the first century, the apostle John lived in Ephesus. 
made it the center of his ministry. Church history tells us he brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him and that she died there. Thinking about that, what would a Christmas Eve service be like with Mary in the congregation? That would be a little different. And most likely, uh, John operated there. His gospel and his epistles were all sent here first. This is the most strategic church probably in the initial 400 years of Christianity. And uh, there are people in this church who received this letter. They knew John personally. Some of them probably knew him very well, were close friends. There were probably some who could even remember the ministry of the Apostle Paul among them. So this church had Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, Paul, Timothy, and John. This is easily the most successful pastoral search committee in the history of Christianity. So Ephesus is a big deal. It's a religious center, a banking center, a trade center, a an occult center. If there's any city in which the church needs spiritual discernment, it's Ephesus. And they're going to be commended by Christ for having just that discernment. You can turn off the map now. Thanks. So this is the church receiving this letter. It's written by John, but it was dictated to him. He was not the speaker. And as we look down, verse 1, uh, the next blank is the speaker the letter begins with a reminder of the authority of the one speaking to them through the pen of John. We read the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Each of these seven letters follows a pattern. There's a symmetry to them. And in each case, it begins with an address to the angel of that church. And then it's followed by some identification of the Lord Jesus Christ which, if you remember, is drawn from John's vision of Christ back in chapter 1. We'll see all those descriptions of Jesus repeated in these letters. And so here he's described as the one who holds the seven uh, stars in his hand and walks amongst the lampstands. Jesus is the Lord of the church, and he walks among his congregations with a word of blessing and a word of warning. He's aware of their circumstances. He knows what they've had to endure. He knows the struggles they face. But he also knows their sins and their failures. And he tells them when he, he knows all this when he gives them a commendation. Commendation verses 2 and 3 and verse 6. In each letter, next comes the statement of what the Lord knows about that church's spiritual condition. And so Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And then jumping down to verse 6, he says, This you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Christ, who is the first and chief pastor of the church, has this intimate knowledge of his churches. He knows their strengths and he knows their weaknesses. And the church in Ephesus wasn't the only one that we know of that has been uh, troubled by imposters, men who had laid claim to some position of authority in the church in order to gain a following. But this church had put the teaching and the way of life of these strangers to the test. And they compared them 
to the true apostles and, uh, and to what they had written. And when they failed the test, they closed their ears to these men. The, the Ephesians have faithfully persevered. They haven't tolerated wicked men, probably referring to the removal of those who embrace the pagan immorality around them. This temple of Artemis was a huge uh, place of worship. You had emperor worship. You had a worship of these false gods. And there was gross immorality in this temple. And they attested all these people who claimed to be apostles and found their claims and their teaching and their way of life to be false. So after carefully examining these apostolic pretenders, the Ephesians exposed their evil ways, prevent them from getting a forum in the church, and then remove them from the church. And Jesus commends them for that. One particular group of people they were able to defend the church against are the Nicolaitans. Jesus says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And later on, in a letter to one of the other churches, we'll see this group is compared to two Old Testament figures, Balaam and Jezebel, both of whom sought to lure Israel away from the true God by tempting people to adapt pagan practices, which were subtle forms of idolatry and immorality. In the Bible, idolatry and immorality are always linked. You use idolatry to lead one away from God and then lead them into immorality. So, for those of you that are still having kids, and there's a number of you out there, don't name them Balaam or Jezebel or Judas. Those aren't good names. Okay? And since the name Nicolaitans means conquering the people, it's not clear if this was the formal name of the group or is this the description that's placed on them by Jesus? But it's not a good name either. And Jesus commends the Ephesian church for hating what this group does, which he also hates. Now, are there groups out there today whom we ought to hate? That's a strong word. I wasn't allowed to use that word growing up. If I said I hate something, my mother would correct me and say, you dislike them. She didn't like somebody to use that word. It's a very strong word. But the Bible is using just that word. And the answer to the question is yes. There are groups out there today that we ought to hate. But let's be very clear about this. The text doesn't say we're to hate the people of that group. But to hate, quote, the works of the Nicolaitans. We're to hate what they teach. We're to hate what they're trying to do. We're to hate how they're misleading people. We're to hate their idolatry. We're to hate their immorality. We're to hate everything they're trying to accomplish. We're just not told to hate them. And you ought to make that distinction because it's easy to just throw them all together. Now today, there's a lot of false teachers and false religions out there. We have other religions like Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism, and we're not supposed to accommodate their teaching. It's false. We have other spiritualities, some of which are based in some of these religions, some of which are just plain paganism, like the whole New Age movement and witches and various occult groups. We have Christian cult groups, false churches 
that have twisted the scriptures to create unbiblical doctrines to lead people astray, like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or the Unitarians. And we have false teachers within Christianity, teachers who preach a health and wealth gospel, teachers who preach salvation by works, teachers who preach faith without repentance, lots and lots of false teachers out there. And let's not forget that we have a lot of people within the church who aren't really true believers in Christ. And in their day-to-day life, they don't look or act any different from the rest of the culture. And yes, they attend church and they own Bibles and they try to behave and they give money, blah, blah, blah. They profess to believe in God, but they have no relationship with Jesus. And our churches, particularly in America, are full of these people. Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, Baptist, even Presbyterian. False believers whom Jesus himself doesn't recognize. And if you went and read Matthew 25, you can see for yourself what he has to say to them. It's not pretty. Anyway, Jesus commends the Ephesian church for their faithfulness, their doctrine, their purity, their perseverance. But they have a problem in this hardworking, tireless, enduring, discerning, truth-loving, lie-hating congregation. They have a problem, and so Jesus brings a rebuke. He brings a rebuke, verse 4. This is probably the most intriguing question in our text today. It says that they've abandoned their first love. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What is the love that the Ephesian Christians had lost. Some argue that what is meant is that the Ephesians Christians had lost their love for Christ. That was their first love. They're still doing the right things, but they're no longer motivated by devotion to Jesus. They compare that statement here to the one in Jeremiah 2, where the Lord tells Israel, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, Your love is a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Others, however, argue that what was lost in Ephesus was brotherly love. In their zeal for doctrinal purity, a very good thing in and of itself, and a zeal they're commended for actually twice in this letter, they have allowed a critical spirit to grow amongst them. This congregation has had to defend the faith over and over and over again against all comers. And yet these doctrinal battles have produced a uh, resentment and bitterness and a judgmental attitude within the church. And they've become overtly critical, not only questioning doctrine, but motives. They've become contentious and negative. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone? This is what Reformed people are often accused of. And while it's not entirely true, it's not entirely false either. There are PCA churches that could be accurately described as judgmental and contentious. We see that problem addressed so often in the New Testament, we've seen it enough ourselves to know that's a reasonable interpretation. Now, in the finest commentary available on Revelation, a monumental study by Dr. Greg Beal, he concludes that all seven letters are actually about the same thing. 
they set before us one mark of the ideal church, which is bearing witness to Christ in a pagan world around us. And he argues that verse 4 refers to neither brotherly love or the love of Christ, but to the love of a lost world, and specifically to sharing the gospel and bearing witness to others, which these believers apparently loved to do when they first became followers of Christ. He points out the identification of Christ at the beginning uh, as the one who walks among the lampstands, and the threat, the warning uh, here, should they fail to repent, is that he will remove their lampstand. He's speaking to these Christians as light bearers. And he points out that the entire thought goes back to Jesus' remark in the Gospels about putting a lamp on a stand to give light to the whole house and how Christians are to be the light of the world. So what's right? What's the correct interpretation? I'm not sure. And I don't actually think it makes a whole lot of difference uh, because they all come together naturally in the Christian life. There is no true love of others that doesn't originate in the love of God. And anyone whose heart is full of God's love will love both those inside the church and bring Christ to those outside the church. So I'm taking an all-of-the-above position. They've just stopped loving. They've stopped uh, apparently loving Jesus. They've stopped loving each other. They've stopped loving people outside the church. Love is no longer a word that would be used to describe this church. Now, Jesus said in Luke 10, what is the first and greatest commandment? That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And the second is like unto it, your neighbor as yourself. I think that pretty well sums it up. That's what Jesus wants. That's what he wants you to do. That's what he wants me to do. That's what he wants the church to do. Whatever the specific reference, what happened in Ephesus, Jesus said would happen often. In Matthew 24, he said, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But Jesus, as the king and head of the church, he's also the wise counselor and shepherd of their souls. And so he doesn't just leave them with a rebuke but he gives them counsel and warning. Verse 5, counsel and warning. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember, repent, redo. You can remember that. Jesus is exhorting this church, pleading with this congregation to go back and do those things they did at first. He doesn't tell us what those were. But if you think about it, when you first became a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what were some of the things you did? I don't know about all of you, but I've heard many of you share that you couldn't get enough of the Scripture. You know, you just devoured the Bible, reading it over and over again. Some of you couldn't wait to get together and fellowship with other believers to pray with other believers, to worship with other believers. And a lot of you, you couldn't stop talking about Jesus because he changed your life. And now Jesus says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Apparently these things aren't happening like they used to. And because of that, our love isn't all that noticeable anymore. 
and we can critique the culture, and we can argue the fine points of theology, but sometimes we can come across as a bunch of unloving jerks. And apparently Jesus thinks that an unloving Christian is an oxymoron, if not just a moron. I mean, read it. These are hard words. He's not beating around the bush with them. Jesus takes this loss of love so seriously. He says they've fallen so far. He threatens drastic action. The removal of his blessing, the removal of his presence, the removal of his lampstand from this congregation. Remember, the lampstand is a symbol of the presence of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, actively enabling this church to be a light to the world, the unbelieving world around it. And Jesus is threatening to turn off the light. We're going to get back to that in the application. So let's jump to the end of verse 7. And yet we see he ends with a promise. Each of his letters ends with a promise. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now to some of the churches, a specific promise is given, but to all of them, a general promise of reward is given to those who overcome. John doesn't define what he means by conquerors, but as we go through the book, it'll become clear that overcoming and conquering means remaining faithful to Christ and to his cause in defiance of the opposition and the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the reward to be given mentioned at the end of each of the letters is eternal life, described by some familiar image. Now we hear of the tree of life in paradise at the end of the book of Revelation, in the description of heaven that we get in chapter 22. Now there's an amazing irony here. And the irony is, the temple of Artemis, that's the big temple in Ephesus where he's writing, is built on the site of an ancient tree shrine. And the symbol of Artemis, what they were putting on all those religious trinkets, was of a date palm tree, uh, which is being uh, put on these trinkets and sold throughout the city. The irony is that Jesus excels Artemis, and he will crush all such uh, objects of idol worship. And in this letter, the painful memory of uh, paradise lost in Genesis 3 is not being transformed into hope. This promise points ahead to the tree of life in the new Jerusalem, bearing a different crop each month and healing the nations through its leaves. And Jesus' word of rebuke, his warning about the removal of his lampstand, is not the final word to the church. He reminds them, it's not too late. Repentance is still possible. And the church can still go back and do what it did uh, at first and not come under Christ's judgment. The command to repent is followed by the promise of the gospel. If you repent, there is a tree of life. He promises access to a far better tree, a tree of life which yields endless delight and eternal life. So all that's about the church and this letter and everything going on. But we have to ask, what would he say to us? 
What would he say to us? Given the distinct uh, character of each of these churches, you can't help but wonder what Jesus might say to us if he was writing to the angel of, the, of Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church in Leesburg, Virginia. What do you think he would say? You know, would he commend us for certain aspects of our life and work as a congregation? If so, what? Would he find something to rebuke? If so, what would that be? It's not as if these churches were completely imperfect in every way. I mean, the criticism contained in this letter concerns more than just the routine issues of the Christian life of every Christian church. It has to do with something in the life of the church that's so serious, if left unaddressed and unrepented of, it would threaten to bring the Lord's judgment down upon it. How would the Lord Jesus Christ encourage us? And precisely how would he call upon us to repent? Can't help but wonder about that. See, the great significance is that uh, at the end of each one of these seven letters to these seven churches, we're summoned to hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. We may not be exactly as any one of these seven were when John wrote to them, but somewhere in the midst of them we'll find ourselves and the word of the exalted Christ will be to us as a church and as a people. And the Lord Jesus Christ might just as well as written these seven letters to us who form this congregation. That's what he's done. And there's unmistakable lessons for us here. I've listed three of them. First, the Lord commends hard work. We're not reminded often enough that the godly Christian life is hard work. You know, we sort of shy away from that. There's a fear that any emphasis on work, any work at all, might undermine the gospel message of salvation by grace, not as something that's earned. Paul's always saying it's not by works, but by faith. We receive and obtain peace with God and entrance into eternal life. But here, the very same wor word, work, is used twice. Jesus commends these people for their work in verse 2, and then verse 5, he encourages them to do the works they did at first. And the reality is, almost everything in the Christian life is hard work if we intend to do it well. He says, I know your works and your toil. That's what he literally says to the Ephesian church. What works? What toil? Well, works towards God, worship, prayer, stewardship, overcoming sin. Works toward fellow Christians, such as forgiveness, acts of kindness, generosity, uh, care, assistance, sympathy, the bearing of burdens, admonishment when necessary, and works towards the world, such as the love of enemies, making Christ known by word and deed, acts of charity, the telling of truth, so on. Everything we're commanded to do in the law of God, every way we're to live so as to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive, requires hard work. There isn't an easy thing in that whole list. We are, Paul said, to be eager to do what is good. And we surely ought to aspire to be described as a church and a people that work very hard in the work of the Lord. That's a good way to examine ourselves. We live in a comfortable world with so many entertaining diversions. 
And most of us think our jobs require enough work as it is. And we want our Christian life at least to come naturally, which is a way of saying easy. But it doesn't. And it never has. It's the hardest, most demanding work of all. So put the question to yourself. Am I working hard at my calling as a Christian? Am I putting consistent effort into doing what ought to be done? Whether in my heart or with my life, can other people, uh, can anyone see that my hard work at being a Christian is a characteristic feature of my life? For these Christians, hard work was characteristic. And the Lord commended them for it. He admired and loved that about them. Second, the Lord commends fidelity to the truth, faithfulness to the truth. They're commended for this not once, but twice. Once in regard to the so-called apostles, and second in regard to the Nicolaitans. The Apostle Paul has already warned this church about this issue. If you go back to Acts 20, he tells them when he leaves, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He specifically is telling the elders of the Ephesian church this. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. These believers and their elders and their pastors has taken that warning to heart. Men would come among them with claims of spiritual authority and insight, and the Ephesian believers would apply the test of orthodox teaching and faithful living and send them packing, anyone who didn't measure up. They got a reputation for being discerning Christians who could spot false teaching a mile away. And our world is no different than that faced uh, by the Ephesian church. There are always folks urging us to be less rigid, to make less of our doctrine, to be more tolerant of other views and other ways of life. And there are evangelicals today who are urging such compromise. Now, they would never say in public that they hate the views of the Nicolaitans, as Jesus says he did. But the Ephesians knew better, and the Lord commended them for their loyalty to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. They knew what the gospel was, they knew what the Christian life was, and they were determined to be loyal to both. And Jesus commends them for it. And then finally, Jesus warns us to repent. These believers are to be commended for a lot of stuff. There, there's much for them to be commended. And so important was what they did. So crucial to a faithful Christian testimony and the welfare of the church, the Lord threatens the church in Pergamum with his wrath precisely for failing to do what the Ephesian church did. Loyalty to Christ is not achieved by reaching a certain ratio of virtue and vice. It's not a numerical calculation of hard work and fidelity to the truth, and that makes up for our lack of love. 
It's a subtle temptation to which we're all subject to from time to time, and all churches are subject to all the time. You know, we know we're failing to honor uh, Christ in some area of our life, but you know, we're doing so much better over here in this other area. And we never really admit it, but it's as if we're counting up our merits and our demerits. And the Lord just puts a shuddering stop to all that comparing of strengths and weaknesses and taking comfort from our strengths and setting them over against our weaknesses. He puts a sudden stop to that kind of thinking. He commends the Ephesians. They're doing well in this way and in that way. But then he threatens to remove their lampstand if they don't recover a life of love. This is a Christian church. It knew what it was supposed to do, and it was doing it, and the hardest work was being done. But devotion to the Lord, the love of others, a heart for the lost, these things are slipping from their grasp. And the main point of every one of these letters is obtaining eternal life. Revelation is all about the ultimate destiny of human beings. This is the great issue of the book. And the letter makes the point emphatically, one does not get to eat from the tree of life who will not work hard at the calling of a Christian, who will not remain faithful to the truth uh, as it has been revealed by Christ through his apostles, and who will not live a life of love. So are we deficient in love? Of course we are. Of course we are. None of us is as loving as we could be. I thought about all the loving things that people in this church do. And there's a lot. You could come up with a pretty good list. But you could also come up with people that we probably haven't been so loving to. And things that we've forgotten to do because we were so busy. It's not that hard. And what we're told there, the way to make up that deficiency, the way to rekindle that love, the Lord explicitly tells us, repent and do the works you did at first. That's the challenge. We have to get back to the Bible, reading it over and over again. We have to get back to regular fellowship with other believers, praying often with other believers, worship that isn't just going through the motions, and talking about Jesus as the one who changed your life. And if we do those things, that will bring back the love. Now, to be honest, I have many hopes for all of you. I want you to live happy lives. I want you to enjoy your marriages and your families. I want you to have good jobs and be able uh, to pay your way through this world and adequately uh, provide for your loved ones. But more than all of that, and even if none of that comes true in your life, I hope you'll be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ and that no one will ever be able to doubt where you stand and to whom you've committed your life. And I hope that hard work for the sake of Jesus and his church will be characteristic of your life. And I hope that yours will be a life of love devoted to both God and man. And finally, I want you to eat from the tree of life. And to that end, I hope and pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will overcome every obstacle that stands between you and God. Jesus tells you what to do. Remember, repent, do the works you did at first.
That's a tall order. And only the king can make it happen. But the good news is, the king is coming. The king is coming. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this revelation. Thank you that it unveils to us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray uh, that you will help us to take seriously what's written here. That you would let these words change our lives. Lord Jesus, I don't want to be known as the pastor of a church filled with theologically correct, unloving jerks. Please don't let that happen. May your Holy Spirit have his way with us right now. Help us to remember those things we did at first and repent because we don't love you and we don't love each other as we should. We ask that you would do this for us in the name of the one who walks among the lampstands, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.